We come to one of the most well-known parables of Scripture today, the story of the Good Samaritan. Even people who are not very familiar with the Bible know this story. They might refer to someone who acts compassionately as a Good Samaritan. In Kearney, of course, we have a hospital named after the guy, right? So it's on our minds often. The parable is often interpreted as a simple morality tale, right? And the, the meaning is that you should likewise be compassionate to everyone. And that's true. At least that is part of the meaning of the story, and it's an important part to be sure. But as is always the case with the words of our Lord, there is more going on here. So this morning, we want to take this well-known story, and we want to dig deep into the details, uh, try to better understand the context and the society in which Jesus originally spoke these words, and that will help us to better understand how this story actually teaches us about Jesus himself. With that in mind, let me pray for our time in the word. Merciful God, teach us to read your word rightly, that seeing the mercy and love you have shown us in Jesus Christ, we may in return love you and show that same love to our neighbor. We ask that you do this through your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The story of the Good Samaritan is found in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, where we learn the context which provokes Jesus to tell this story. And, and it's important that we not isolate the Good Samaritan story from that context. It's not a standalone tale. It's part of a dialogue that Jesus has with a lawyer. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So first, who is asking Jesus this question? Well, a lawyer. And just in, as in our usage of that word, here it refers to someone who is a trained expert in the law. But in Jesus' society, what law uh, are we referring to? We're talking about the law of God, specifically the first five books of the Bible, also known as the books of Moses or the Torah. So this lawyer is also what we might call a biblical scholar, right? He knows the content of the scriptures thoroughly. Not only that, he would be familiar with all the various debates and controversies and technical conversations that surrounded the Torah in those days. Just as in our own day, we have many different streams of Christianity, different denominations with different interpretations of the same Bible. So in Jesus' day, there were different ways of interpreting Torah, and this man would be familiar with all of these. Now, asking an honest question of a wise teacher is one thing. That's what faithful disciples of Jesus were often doing. We saw it in Sunday school this morning. They asked Jesus how to pray, right? It's good to ask questions of the teacher. But here in verse 25, we're given a hint that this lawyer is not asking an honest question. We are told the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And this should tingle the ears of anyone who's been uh, listening attentively to Luke's gospel because this phrase was used once before. Indeed, 
This phrase is only used one other time in Luke's gospel. Can you think of someone else who put Jesus to the test in Luke's gospel? It was back in chapter 4 at the temptation story where it was the devil who put Jesus to the test by trying to get Jesus to put his father to the test. So this is not a good thing. Luke is saying that this lawyer is acting like the devil. He does not come humbly to Jesus in order to learn from him. He wants to stump Jesus. He wants to see him crash and burn. He wants to reveal him as the phony he believes him to be. So the lawyer asks him a question, a question that was a common one among students of the Torah. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And we need to also understand here that for most Jews in those days, eternal life was something one hoped to receive in what they called the age to come. There was the present age and the age to come. And the age to come was when God's Messiah would take the throne and usher in an eternal reign of peace and prosperity and flourishing for Israel. That's where eternal life would be found. So this is a question. Jesus, what does one have to do in order to participate in the coming kingdom of the Messiah, to enter into the eternal life that he will bring to Israel? And Jesus, surely aware that this man's intentions are not completely honest, like any good teacher, Jesus answers the question with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So notice first, Jesus points the man back to the word of God. If you want to know about inheriting eternal life, you have to look to the scriptures. And this is exactly what Jesus did when the devil put him to the test. He pointed him to the scriptures. Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this too was a common phrase among rabbis. There were sometimes different or sometimes conflicting ways of interpreting the law. Now surely... The lawyer agrees with Jesus that the scriptures hold the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Any faithful Jew would say that. He was likely expecting that response. And you can kind of imagine him saying here, oh, Jesus, I I'm so glad you asked. You see, I happen to be an expert in the law, and so I'd be more than happy to educate you in this matter. What he actually says in verse 27 is, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's a great answer. In fact, it's the same answer that Jesus gives to this question in Matthew and Mark's Gospels when it is asked of him. It's a biblical answer, not only because it's a combination of Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema, and Leviticus 19.18, which was read for you this morning, but because it is an accurate summary of the whole law. Every command of the hundreds given in the Torah could be subsumed under one of those heads. They are either a way to love God or a way to love your neighbor. And what does this imply? If the whole law can be summed up in love God and love your neighbor, what do those two commands have in common? Love. Love is the beating heart of the law of God. So we should note here that the lawyer knows 
in his head that love is the law of God, that love is what must be done if one is to inherit eternal life. But has the lawyer been motivated by love in his questioning of Jesus? No. And Jesus sees this from the beginning, and it seems he is pointing this out in his next response, verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. You answered correctly, do this and you will live. He's simply saying what scriptures say about the law. Leviticus 18.5, God says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.1, the whole commandment you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You live by doing the law and the law is love God, love neighbor. But you see, it requires the doing, right? That's the hard part. Knowing is not enough. It's not enough to know that the law is love. To say that the law is love, you actually have to love. As the Apostle James so memorably puts it, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And the word is love. Well, kind of like all of us, the lawyer squirms a little bit here. If he truly believes what he said, he ought to be loving his neighbor. He ought to be loving Jesus right now instead of trying to put him to the test, trying to make him stumble. So how can the lawyer respond to this? It seems to me there's at least two ways. He could examine his own heart, question his own behavior, perhaps even repent, or he can deflect attention from himself by questioning the law. Did God really say? I mean, we get this, don't we? I do this all the time. The law requires something of me that is hard to do, that I don't want to do. The easiest thing is to just say, well, maybe it didn't quite mean that. Maybe it meant this. Or maybe we can define it in this way. We all do that. The lawyer doesn't want to question himself. Rather, what does verse 29 say? But he, desiring to justify himself, in other words, wanting to show that he's the one in the right, but he, desiring to just himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's define things, Jesus. As one commentator says, he tries to deflect attention away from himself by implying that the law is the problem, that the law is unclear. It's necessary to define who is neighbor and who is not to divide between us and them. So again, the lawyer is not asking an honest question. He is putting Jesus to the test. Because for the Jews of Jesus' day, the question of who should be counted as neighbor was considered a sensible question. And for the Jews of Jesus' day, there was a correct answer. To that question. The lawyer knew this, and he probably knew from watching how Jesus lived and loved that Jesus was not going to give the answer that the religious leaders of the day wanted him to give, and that's probably why he asked the question. 
Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't answer the devious question. What does he do? He tells a story. And he tells a story designed to force the lawyer to give the true answer. A story that will draw the true answer out of his malicious heart. And this is the occasion for Jesus' telling of the story of the Good Samaritan. So before we dig into the story, let me just remind you what we've learned from this dialogue so far, from the context. Based on the conversation that leads to this story, we have to understand that the Good Samaritan is a story about what it means to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we also understand that that must mean that the Good Samaritan is a story about keeping the law of God, which is love, which was given to Israel. And that means that the Good Samaritan is a story about how one can inherit eternal life. The Good Samaritan is a story about how to inherit eternal life. It's not just a story about being nice to everyone. And wouldn't that be nice? The Good Samaritan is a story about escaping the judgment of a righteous God and being delivered into the kingdom of his Messiah, the kingdom of eternal life. Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And we're not told this man's ethnicity, but we assume he is Jewish. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's heading south to Jericho. It's a journey of about 18 miles, and there's a lot of stretches of rocky terrain there where robbers like these could hide and attack unsuspecting travelers like this poor man. Jesus continues, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So let's consider these two men. The first is a priest, which means he is a Jew, and he's a descendant of Aaron, the son of Levi. All priests served in rotation at the temple in Jerusalem at their appointed time, performing the rites prescribed for them in God's law. The second man is a Levite. So he's also a descendant of Levi, but not of Aaron. Levites also helped with the work of the temple, but not in the priestly role. They had other duties. Now, we know from other ancient records that there were many wealthy priests living in Jericho, so this story would have made sense in Jesus' context. Priests and Levites living in Jericho would have to travel on the road to Jerusalem often to perform their duties. Why? Why does Jesus use a priest and a Levite as his characters here? Well, because like the lawyer to whom he tells this story, the priest and the Levite would have been thoroughly familiar with the law of God. It would be assumed that they would be examples of faithful and devout Judaism who lived according to the law, that they would be revered and respected by the people of Israel. And actually, that fact could explain why both men passed by. Remember, Jesus said the victim was, to all appearances, dead. 
And according to the Torah, anyone who came into contact with a dead body would become ceremonially unclean. Many Jews at the time said that you would contract uncleanness if so much as your shadow touched the body. So, thinking the man dead, as he appeared to be, the priest and Levite take a wide berth rather than risk becoming ceremonially unclean and not being able to perform their duties that day. They don't even check on him, do they? If they had checked on him and found him living, they would not have become unclean and they could have helped the man. Even if he did prove to be dead, they still could have seen to his body, ensured that it was properly buried. Then all they had to do was go through the cleansing ritual and after seven days they would be clean once again. Who has the time to be inconvenienced like that though? Plus, the robbers are probably still around. If I stop to help, I could end up dead myself. I don't want to be dead like this guy. Much safer, much easier to step aside and go on my way. So just as the lawyer quickly sidesteps Jesus when Jesus exhorts him to do the law, so this priest and Levite quickly sidestep this poor man in need of their love. Now, I don't know whether the lawyer and the others listening to Jesus would have been shocked to hear of a priest and a Levite not helping the man. I guess it depends on how the priests and Levites really acted in those days. But I think we can say for sure that the next part of the story would have scandalized many in the audience. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day hated the Samaritans. We kind of need to understand that dynamic to make sense of what Jesus is doing here. You might remember from our series on kings that after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom was divided in two. The southern kingdom is called Judah and its capital in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom called Israel with its capital in Samaria, which is where the word Samaritan comes from. You may also remember that the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, started that kingdom off in the worst way possible by establishing an idolatrous system of worship in opposition to the one God had commanded. He erected two golden calves in his kingdom and he called all Israel to worship there instead of at the temple in Jerusalem. And that trajectory of idolatry and corrupted worship in the northern kingdom, they were never able to recover fully from that. Eventually, God gave the northern kingdom over to the invading Assyrians and the Assyrians deported many of those Israelite people out of that country, and they replaced them with a hodgepodge of other peoples they had conquered with their gods and their culture. So any Israelites who remained in Samaria, they intermarried with these people, and their already compromised worship became further compromised by foreign gods and idolatry. Many Samaritans in Jesus' day still claim to worship the God of Israel and claim to be heirs of his covenant promises. They held to the books of Moses, but they rejected all Jewish history after the time of Joshua. They even altered their version of the Ten Commandments to require worship on Mount Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem. 
And so the Judeans from the south despised them for this. They destroyed the Samaritan's temple in 128 BC. Likewise, the Samaritans would often harass and sometimes attack Jewish pilgrims who were traveling through their land to attend festivals in Jerusalem. Once, a group of Samaritans even entered the Jerusalem temple and defiled it with corpses. So there was no love lost between the Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day. To the devout Jew, Samaritans were considered blood traders, idolaters, and sinners. And one of the worst insults you could sling was to call someone a Samaritan. So no pious Jewish rabbi would ever tell a story where a priest and a Levite were the bad guys and a Samaritan was a hero. But that is precisely what Jesus does. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, the equivalent of two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What is all this if not love? Attentive love. Generous love. Self-sacrificing love. And it is shown to someone who, under ordinary circumstances, likely would have spit on, cursed, and rejected this Samaritan. It truly is remarkable love. It's undeniable love. And that's what Jesus is counting on. Remember what the lawyer had asked, and who is my neighbor? In response, Jesus told the story, and now Jesus turns to the lawyer and he asks him a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now notice, Jesus does not ask, Who did the victim consider to be his neighbor? He doesn't ask, who did the priest or the Levite consider their neighbor? He doesn't even ask, who did the Samaritan consider his neighbor? He doesn't answer the man's question. No, Jesus asks, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Think about this. It's as if Jesus is putting the lawyer in the man's place, isn't he? If you were the one lying dead in the road, which of these men would you want as your neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer can't deny it. He said it himself. The heart of the law is love. If he was lying half dead in the road, that's the neighbor that he would want. He admits it. He wouldn't care if the man was a Jew or a Samaritan or a Roman. He would want someone to show him mercy. And Jesus said to him, as he says to us, you go and do likewise. 
If it was you, you would want mercy. So if you are fulfilling the law, love your neighbor as you want to be loved, you already know what you must do. You must go and show mercy. The lawyer has already showed us that the Jews of Jesus' day wanted to delineate neighbor according to racial boundaries, according to geographical boundaries, according to theological boundaries and historical boundaries, just as we often do today, don't we? We love lots of people as our neighbors, as long as they are from the same country as us, as long as they vote for the same political party we do, as long as they are of the right ethnicity, as long as they hold the same opinions we do or belong to the same church as us. Lord, have mercy on us, for we put you to the test by limiting your law and limiting our love to serve our own desires. But this is the point Jesus is making. He's bringing a new kingdom, which operates according to the law of love. He's bringing a new kingdom, which fulfills the law of love. Because think about what kind of love Jesus has been exemplifying all throughout Luke's gospel thus far. Has his love been held back by any man-made boundaries? On the contrary, what boundary has the love of Jesus not shattered in this gospel? Demon-possessed, sick, leper, paralyzed, tax collector, sinner, poor, Jew, Roman, Samaritan, man, woman. How many of these were barred from the neighborhood in Israel? How many were outcasts, unlovable, untouchable? And yet Jesus loved them all and proved himself a neighbor to all. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing, the kingdom of mercy, the kingdom of love, and thus the true fulfillment of the law. So the implication for the lawyer is clear. Stop weaseling your way out of your calling by twisting the law so that you only have to love the people you already find lovable. Go make everyone you meet on the side of the road your neighbor by loving them, as you see Jesus doing everywhere he goes. See, in telling this story, Jesus is actually showing himself to be a neighbor to the lawyer. He's loving him. He shows him mercy by getting him to see his sin, by getting him to admit that he is actually not an expert in the law, that he is certainly not living out the law of love. And in doing so, Jesus may be saving the lawyer from eternal death and showing him how to inherit eternal life. He's showing him mercy. He's being a neighbor. And that brings us, I think, to the deeper point of the story. Remember what we said at the beginning. This story was inspired by that initial question, what must we do to inherit eternal life? The real answer is, we can't do anything. We can't do anything. Because we're the one lying dead on the side of the road. We may think we're experts in the law. We may think we're doing what it takes to inherit eternal life. We don't know that we are dead. 
in our sins and in our trespasses, we are dead. We are the one who desperately needs a neighbor. We need someone to see us. We need someone to have compassion on us. We need someone to show mercy to us. We need someone to share with us out of his own possession. We need someone to cleanse our wounds with his oil and wine. We need someone to provide lodging for us. We need someone to pay the price for us. We need someone to heal us and restore us. We need someone who will leave us in good hands when he has to go away. We need someone who promises to return for us on the third day. He may be despised and rejected and cursed by the world, but he is the neighbor we need, and his name is Jesus. Only if Jesus has mercy on us, touches our dead bodies, raises us up and pays our way, only if Jesus is first a neighbor to us can we then go and do likewise. We desperately need the greater Samaritan to have mercy on us. And the Gospel of Luke tells us this is precisely what Jesus has done. So let us pray to him. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for having mercy on us when we were dead in our trespasses. Thank you for sacrificing yourself to atone for our sins, to heal our iniquities. Help us to rest and be revived in your mercy and love. And having been loved by you, give us strength to love God and our neighbors as you have loved us. We pray in your name. Amen. Now we give the Lord of our tithes and offerings. You may give electronically according to the instructions on the screen or in the box by the sound booth as you leave today. We come now to the table of our King. Would you please stand? We'll sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given yourself to us in the person of your dear Son, Jesus. United with him, we now give our lives to you through these tithes and offerings. We grant that they would be used to love you and to love your neighbor both here and throughout the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.